Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's Invisible Not Broken. So today I was interviewing Sarah Ramey, who wrote the book, The Lady's Handbook for Her Mysterious Illness, a memoir. I cannot recommend it enough. I just need to put some trigger warnings out there for you. We are definitely going to be discussing some seriously um, frightening things about the medical establishment, about what I would at least consider medical abuse. And so just be aware that it's something we are discussing. I hope you enjoy the episode. I do not usually read memoirs. I am not always the biggest fan of reading nonfiction. I like to escape my world. I loved this book and just unequivocally loved it. I think it's a very important book. And it's also a wonderful book to give to your physician or your pain clinic doctor or therapist or someone in your life who is not understanding what you're going through. I cannot recommend this book enough. And no, I'm not paid to say this. I This is just purely how I feel about this book. Was such an interesting book to read about everything you went through. I'm also going to say very quickly to buy the book immediately. And <laughs> right at the very top of our show notes is a link to Sarah's book, which like I said, I'm not a big fan of memoirs, but I read this in about two days and that's kind of slow and fast for me because I usually skim, but I couldn't skim your book because it was so engaging. The first part was a gut punch, visceral journey right with you in all of the I'm going to say medical malpractice. You don't have to say it because it's legal, but there was a lot of medical abuse as he went through that was very well written. And then the twist at the end of this journey of the feminine and masculine, it was was mind-blowing. If we could just start with what you went through. So it was not a slow descent. It was kind of fast in your 20s. Yeah, it is a complicated story. I will say that up front. I don't have a singular diagnosis and I didn't have a sudden onset of what it would be like for the whole time. It's just been quite complicated, but in a nutshell, I'm 39 now, but when it started, I was 22. I was a senior in college and healthy and normal. I had some very minor gut health issues, which I would not have recognized as gut health issues at the time, but I certainly had them and minor nagging issues. I never would have even dreamed of calling myself sick. And I started getting these UTIs that would go away. They kept going, kept going. And so I finally went to a urologist that um, performed a procedure that essentially went wrong. It was a botched, it's called a urethral dilation. Something went wrong during the procedure. And within 12 hours, I'd become septic. I'd be hospitalized. I had horrific pelvic pain. Overnight, the big thing that changed was I had had some pelvic pain. And all of a sudden, I had just had like unbelievable pelvic pain. But also the real mystery part, and this is very common for chronic fatigue syndrome, is that I just went from being completely healthy and normal to mortal exhaustion 100% of the time, sleeping 18 hours a day, my muscles ached. I, I just felt so sick, like I had the flu constantly. And in the beginning, it was all just like a big muddle. My parents are physicians. And so everybody that was paying attention to this No one knew that a mistake had been made in that original procedure. They just thought some unforeseen thing that nobody could understand had happened. It was unfortunate for me, but it certainly wasn't somebody's fault. And the fatigue and the aching and the pain, everybody was just like, we don't know what that is, but surely it will just resolve. Nobody was saying, well, actually, it's quite common for chronic fatigue syndrome to come on after a sudden event in the body, a car accident, viral infection. Now, there is at least a little bit of a better understanding of like, oh, that that's what's happening here. Like this is unfortunately this 
poorly understood problem, but at least we can put her in that category immediately and try to get her help for chronic fatigue syndrome and that family of problems. But that is not what happened. It was just like rabbit hole opened up underneath you. It's under anybody that develops one of these problems. And you just start falling past doctor after doctor after doctor, farther and farther away from your friends and your family. And nobody can figure out what's wrong with you. And you're tested for literally everything as the regular tests, quote, unquote, came back negative, 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 negative. Then a new understanding of my illness started to emerge, which was, as one doctor said, like so many young women her age, this is a psychological problem. And then that understanding is what took over, but not for all of my doctors, but certainly still quite a few, I think, still, if they hear that you have one of these types of problems, like, oh, I see it. I understand. You're one of those women. So I had this event, developed what I now would call chronic fatigue syndrome or myalgic encephalomyelitis. What we didn't understand at the time was a really bad injury to the pelvic nerves because that wasn't understood at the time that all of that scarring that went untreated created just this horrific neuralgia that, that then ballooned into this thing called complex regional pain syndrome, which I also have just a pain syndrome that spreads out over your body and it's horrible. So those are sort of the main things. It's like really bad pelvic pain, the spreading pain syndrome and chronic fatigue syndrome that there's a real range of how severe that can be. It can be like this where I'm up and talking to you, but we'll have to rest for a long time afterwards. And that's good. I feel like I'm in a great place. <laughs> like that's like a real success. And then as anybody that's experienced one of these problems, the severe end of this is it is a living death. You can't do anything. You can't bathe. You can't feed yourself. A lot of people have to be on a feeding tube. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a horror show. I've also been to that end of the spectrum as well. And that's sort of spread out over about 17 years. I think one of the, the scary things about your story was that someone who is sick would look at it and go, oh, okay, you've got the support. You have parents who are doctors. You have the best access to Mayo Clinic level doctors. And that's the scariest thing about this was those ones are the ones that seem to have failed you the hardest. That's true. <laughs> I'm not saying your parents did, but like you had the Mayo doctors, these incredible respected doctors who seem to be the most abusive and the most negligent. Yes, I think that that is correct. And I actually think that part of that is because I do think that those doctors in particular see a lot of people that have mystery illnesses because they are traveling all over the world trying to find help. And so they finally end up at the top places because they don't know anything about these illnesses. My experience of this was that they really feel that it is like a tremendous waste of their time and that these people are time wasters, malingerers, hypochondriacs, all of these horrible things. It is abuse. You have to imagine, especially for diseases like this, that can be so bad. We're talking about like a totally incapacitating, debilitating, disabling disease that is treated as if it is not happening at all. To have that happen to you over and over and over again is so psychologically disorienting and debilitating. It's a misunderstanding on the doctor's part. It doesn't need to be happening. There's no reason for doctors to be doing harm. <laughs> Just the smallest amount of education, that could change overnight. It's not like they have to go back to school and relearn everything. They just need to read a few of the most recent studies about some of these problems to just be like, okay, these are physiologic problems and I don't understand it, but I don't have to treat this person like they're a time waster or you're a bad person. That to me is one of the most important things that interest in terms of like the activism around this to change that relationship between the doctor and the patient. 
they don't have to cure us. <laughs> I don't think anybody's even asking for that. I think that patients like us are just like, don't treat me like human garbage. <laughs> that would make such a huge difference. One of my favorite lines in your book was one of the Mayo doctors, or you said after every sentence, it sounded like you were supposed to say thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that was, <laughs> that one hit close to home. Also, as someone who's a chronic pain patient, one of the things that horrified me was the Percocet denial. It's like you would be willing to have this horrible procedure that is mind-boggling just as a drug seeker. It was cruelly bizarre. That one is a perfect example of where you're being treated as the emotional one in this situation, whereas they're the ones of cool logic and reason. But it is utterly irrational and illogical to think this pa- a person would come in that's for whoever is listening. In this particular procedure, I had to have a piece of my labia cut out with a knife that was not fully anesthetized. It was horrifying. Suffice to say, just a truly horrifying procedure that at the very least should have been treated with the utmost care on the part of the doctor, just trying to make me feel safe and comfortable and whatever. It was the opposite. He was so angry with me (laughs) while doing this horrible surgical procedure. And then afterwards, I'm hysterically crying. And the nurse said, well, which do you want? Can't remember this. Something or Percocet. And I said, I guess Percocet, I don't take pain medications because they often just make me feel so much worse. But in this case, she's like, you're going to need that. And so I was like, fine. She goes out to the doctor and comes back and says, never mind, he's not going to give you that because he doesn't prescribe pain medications to patients like you. It turned out that he felt that I had come up with an excuse to get Percocet, which is to have a vaginal <laughs> biopsy to get one tablet of Percocet. I mean, it's just, it's totally irrational, illogical, but it was being treated as if I was a person that was doing something that was horribly wrong. And a lot of what the book is about is that this should be a singular story of just one person <laughs> that the medical system failed. You can't help everyone. But the number of people are like, oh, that's me too, me too, me too, me too, me too. I have not exactly that story, but a version of something like that should be an absolute aberration and in no way a a, a version of what so many people experience. It feels like your book starts out as crimes and punishment from within of the chronic illness person and ends with Alice and Persephone. And I wanted to start out with the crimes and punishment because... There's so many points that you made that were so beautiful because in a lot of ways with chronic illness, there's a replacement of this religious idea of the perfect woman of the Virgin Mary or the perfect unattainable. You cannot be this woman. And it gets replaced with this new age idea of you can still be the perfect woman with your yoga and your no gluten. You can cure yourself with crystals and positive attitude and a lot of goop products. and. It's a self-hatred that seeps in with that. I'll let you take it from there. Essentially, how the, quote, journey tends to go for people is you start out in regular medicine. Although I guess things have kind of changed because wellness really has moved into the mainstream just in the last couple of years. It's actually different from where I started, where you did not start with yoga. You definitely started with, like urologist to rheumatologist over and over and over again and can't find any help. And so you end up defecting to alternative medicine because you have to find help. So you leave the system that's clearly not able to help you after a couple of years. And there's so much about alternative medicine that is good and that is nourishing and you're believed. There's a a lot of good stuff in alternative medicine that's missing. 
regular medicine. It's changing a lot in the last couple of years. I've had a lot of doctors actually be like, what do you mean this is alternative medicine? We talk about this in regular medicine. I'm like, maybe a little lip service and maybe you're doing that more in the last two or three years, but don't tell me that you've been talking about the importance of real food and avoiding processed food and like all of that for the last 20 years. But so you get into alternative medicine and there's a lot of good stuff there and it feels good and you learn how to take care of yourself better and all of these things are really helpful. But <laughs> there is this incredibly insidious, as you say, model of what it is to be the perfect wellness woman or wellness warrior, especially emotionally. You get into the wellness world and you are really starting to delve into your emotions and you feel like you're dealing with that. But it takes a while to realize that a lot of people in the wellness world, they they are not interested in helping you to own your darker emotions. They are really interested in helping you to divorce yourself from your darker emotions. And that is, in my strong opinion, is very unhealthy. It's like the Stepford wifeification of being a wellness person that is essentially an automaton that makes green juice and does yoga and things positive and everything happens for a reason. You can no longer respond in the appropriate ways. If something bad is happening to you, you need to be able to say, no, this is fucked up. <laughs> this is horrible. It's almost like just going back to whatever system you put it in, the authoritarian idea of I'm right, you're wrong. <laughs> and that goes from problematic parenting, problematic religious practices, this idea of you don't have your own voice, just listen to the leader who in this case is wearing a white coat and is deciding <laughs> your treatment options. That's that's kind of terrifying. And your discussion about like the secret with, did I attract this? It hit really close to home. I have friends who are very into that. Mm-hmm. And watching them when they have had a health struggles descend into almost a level of insanity, trying to force positive thinking in their illness and watching their entire community dissolve because they're now toxic. It really is one of the most insidious things. I think there's a lot of value in trying to look at like, okay, these bad things are happening, but what is the good that I can take from it? I think that that is the lesson that I feel like the secret is trying <laughs> to teach you, but has to layer magic on top of it that makes you into this person that can manipulate the universe in whatever way you want, which is very arrogant. The flip side of that is that when bad things that are out of your control start to happen to you, you have been taught, you've been conditioned that that has to be because you've attracted it. And so the only recourse for you, if you believe that everything happens for a reason and that everything is happening because of your energy, the only way that you are allowed to think about your illness is that it is your fault. If you don't root out the mommy issue, the daddy issue, the thing that happened to you in childhood, if you don't figure that out, the thing that you're dealing with, in this case, chronic illness, will continue to happen. It's like, well, you're not actually sick. This is actually just you imagining this. There's just so many messages from both sides, from the Western approach and from the alternative approach that is really just about, in my opinion, the practitioner not knowing what the fuck they're talking about, not being willing to say, I don't know the answer here. I think of this as a fragility syndrome (laughs) is that because of that ego fragility syndrome, they can't just say, I don't know. It then has to be, you're the problem and I can't help you. They wouldn't say that if they knew what to do. (laughs) They would say, oh, I can help you. I, I know what to do here. I want you to take this pill. I want you to do this procedure. I want you to do this yoga pose. 
But when those things fail, then the only answer can then be that it's must be you. Just we'll be sitting with doctors on just like, just let's just stop. I know what you're going to say. I can already sense what's happening here. Don't tell me that it's me. I know that you don't know. And so we can just stop now. <laughs> and we don't have to go down this other really painful road of telling me that it's, it's all my fault in, in some way or another. I started forcing my mom not to come to my appointments just because she kept more hope than I did. I'm so in tune with seeing that glazed over look. And she would just keep the conversation going. I was like, we're not wasting this person's time anymore or ours. We're done. They do- they're not going to help me. It's okay. We're going to go now. And the doctor would be like, thank God. <laughs> just like, please, that's all I wanted you to say. Like, this is too hard for her because she's still hopeful. I, I'm, I'm good with not being hopeful. Yeah, that's funny. My mom is that way too. My mom does not quite pick up on the person glazing over and keeps going and like, no, no, <laughs> it's actually going to make it worse if we keep going because when you press on them and they've already checked out, it really makes their back against you as a person worse. <laughs> There's a point when apathy becomes hatred. You can see that moment where they hate you. It's like, wow, I'm actually paying you. That is exactly correct. It is very difficult to not internalize that. It's hard for me to not take, or it was for a long time, to not take that on when I could like feel that they hated me. And I was like, oh, I must, I need to be nicer, better. The better of a patient that I became, like the more organized I was, okay. I was like bringing everything in a way that I felt was really well organized and really just the bare bones. They didn't get overwhelmed. They were like, Man, I mean, you're really obsessive compulsive. Like, what's this? And I'm like, no, I, d- I did this because <laughs> I, <laughs> I, <can't laughs> I thought it was too much. And, I just... and it's just that you're just caught in this place of if you come to them with your real symptoms, which immense with the mysterious illnesses, that is one of the problems is that it is like symptom explosion. There's so much that happens that you feel like this can't be. <laughs> but it's real. If you're me and you've interviewed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these people, that's the norm. If that is not strange, it's not you, you're not crazy. Like that is part of what's going on here. It is crazy that we have it backwards, that patients feel bad that they have so many symptoms and that they're going to annoy their doctors with all of these symptoms. You would never do that with illnesses that we take seriously and that we march for and that we have ribbons for. You'd be like, oh my God, I can't believe you have to deal with so many problems. But in this case, it's it's reversed. It's the more you have wrong the less they take you seriously. I'll compound that with vaginal issues. I think there's a certain kind of man who gets attracted to doing any sort of pelvic medicine. I'm sure there's some male doctors out there who are doing it for the right reasons. Cheers. Salute. I haven't met you yet, nor have any of my friends. You know what? That's awesome. I'm so happy that he is there. I'm so happy that there's a good male doctor. I have never met him and none of my friends have. And almost all of us have had children, so we've had plenty of pelvic stuff go on. And I feel like there's a misogyny level of, I hate women and I cannot explain to you how many affordable pap smears I've had. And I've had a similar procedure to what you had done. I've had catheters when I was a small child. I've had all these things done and they were cruel. They would make jokes about these things. Like, you better get used to it, sweetheart. And my mom had the same things. My aunts have had the same treatment. And I'm really afraid that the men who get attracted to gynecology and urology for women, a lot of them hate us. Yeah. I mean, that's something that I don't want to be true. I've definitely experienced myself. I do find that to be less true for younger doctors. Like the one doctor that I have, this public specialist, he's not this way. And he's the youngest of all of them. And my friends who are physicians, I've talked to them about exactly what you're saying. I'm like, am I 
is this just like me in my own trauma about all of this misperceiving this? Every one that I've talked to, they're like, nope. <laughs> and it's a sort of unspoken issue. It's just like, hashtag not all men. It's like, it's not all <laughs> urologists, gynecologists. It's, I don't want to like paint with too broad a brush. But if this is something that every woman that you know, every woman that I know, and my doctor friends are all acknowledging, oh no, that's my experience, or that's something that we see a lot of medicine. That's a huge problem, especially we're not talking about like your shoulder doctor or your ear doctor. So it should be the, again, it should be the opposite. It should be the most caring, the most empathetic, the most emotionally equipped physicians out there. Uh, yeah. I mean, hashtag not all men. That's awesome. You're not one of them. Yeah. I want to talk to your friends immediately. Yeah. If you are a male doctor and you're like, this isn't me, I would never do that. That's awesome. Go talk to your colleagues. Do not let them get away with shit. I know this is some sort of weird secret society among doctors that they will not call each other out. It has to end. We're dying and we're traumatized. You can't just let someone go on abusing people. It's one of those sort of trickier areas because I don't want to alienate anyone. I don't want anyone to feel so attacked that they can't come in and change, right? But that's one of the problems is that you, you can't have a culture. You see the same thing with police. And when something is wrong, instead of dealing with that wrong thing, if they close ranks around that person, there is very little accountability. And it's for a variety of reasons, but that just cannot be the way that it is with these people. They are to protect us. The analogy I'm always using is firemen. So if a fireman goes into a burning building and they save 100 school children, yes, unequivocally heroic. And this is the same for doctors who are constantly doing heroic, incredible things for patients all the time. And they deserve the enormous respect that we offer to doctors. But if it's firemen, if it turns out that there was 20 people in that building and they saw them and they're like, yeah, I don't know, not them. <laughs> I'm not saving them. Like, no, thank you. And it was women or it was like a minority or whatever. For some bad reason, they decided not to save those people. You're not a hero anymore. You don't get to do that. It doesn't matter how much good you do. If you're doing active harm to any subset of your patients or people that you're trying to help, that is a huge problem. You're not insulated by the good work that you do. You have to remain accountable. I think accountability is just in absolute general society, we have to really come to terms with and we have to be able to be held accountable without flipping out too. I've certainly made my missteps. If you ever want to get a rhino tough skin, do a public podcast. It's really fun. You will absolutely get called out. You will come to terms with some of the worst parts of yourself that you are not as happy with. But it's also really useful to get the feedback and to hear from communities that you don't actually aren't necessarily clicking with other groups of people. So it's really helpful to hear from other sides and to take that in and go, oh, okay. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah, that's a really good point that it's not just doctors have to do this. <laughs> the police, we all do this. It's just that there is a real discrepancy between patients. I feel like do this constantly. <laughs> constantly. Yeah. What am I doing wrong? What have I done? How could I do things differently? How do I approach the next person better and be a better version of myself? I think where I just get so frustrated where I see the physicians that I go to over and over and over again, not taking any responsibility for this at all. I want me to it's what I call a woman with a mysterious illness. It's a poor acronym. And it's just one of this family of problems, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, 
polycystic recovery, syndrome, mast cell activation. When you have one of these problems like mold on this gut health, it's this family of neuroendocrine immune problems that clearly, in my opinion, all goes together, is all related and interconnected. It is astonishing that there are so many of us that are all rejected by the medical algorithm. When you go to the doctor and you have one of these problems, even though it's not a rare problem, you are treated in the way that we've been discussing. The whole point of the book, podcasts like this and activism around invisible illness and chronic illness, is this is not in any way rare. There is no excuse for treating, for continuing to turn a blind eye to this. You're like, wow, I must be so broken. I must be so unique that all of these experts can't figure it out. And that's not true. You start to meet people that are like you, other womies, and it's this huge, invisible sort of secret society. Because as a physician, you would think, I would think, that you begin to see this pattern and you're like, oh, oh. okay, I thought that that was illogical, but there's so many of these women and some men with the same sort of categories of problems over and over and over again, just in different combinations. It shocks me that it's still rejected by the algorithm in medicine. You've brought up a really interesting point that I hadn't even considered about this COVID, that we might be seeing a whole lot more of people who are going to have chronic fatigue and other chronic issues, because even if they're not symptomatic, they may have been carrying the COVID virus, or they may have been mildly sick, or they may have been very sick and recovered. And some of these things can come on after a virus. Yeah. So it's very common for... I didn't mention before, it's very common to also have like an autoimmune disease sort of mixed in with all these problems. And it's incredibly common for autoimmunity, certainly chronic fatigue syndrome or myalgic encephalomyelitis, fibromyalgia to come on after a major triggering event. And often that's a really nasty viral infection. That's just something you see in the literature and in any patient community, I mean, over and over and over again, to the point where a lot of the research, I think this is changed in the last maybe five or seven years. But initially, a lot of the research was trying to figure out what virus was causing chronic fatigue syndrome because it seemed there were so many patients that got sick with this problem after a viral infection. The evolved understanding of that is that it's not that there's one virus that causes these types of problems. It's a variety of different major stressors to the system can trigger the same neuroendocrine immune cascade that is essentially a type of neuroinflammation and endocrine dysregulation that can lead to all these different permutations of this problem. And so it does stand to reason that there's probably going to be a post-COVID syndrome where you see essentially it's going to be ME-CFS and I feel like pre-enraged and pre-hopeful because the whole world's attention is focused on this. If there really is something like a post-COVID syndrome that looks just like myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome. If that happens, there is a a higher likelihood that we will take it seriously and won't just be like, oh, that's probably just a bunch of malingerers. I think that's that's unlikely just because it's not all just locked away in the privacy of a million different doctor's offices. It'll be in the public eye, and that's really helpful. If we take it seriously, that may actually open the door to real funding. What is it that's happening when... um, you know, after this major viral infection that is causing this person to be sick, that actually doesn't have anything to do necessarily with the virus itself. The virus is just the trigger. It, to me, it seems like one small kernel of hope that because the big problem with ME-CFS and all of these problems is that they are, I mean, 
catastrophically underfunded. When you look at the numbers for these things, it is so heartbreaking and upsetting. If you looked at it on a graph, your bars for cancer is like 6 billion and AIDS is like 6 billion. <laughs> Chronic fatigue syndrome wouldn't even register on that graph. It wouldn't get a bar. It would just be a little blip that you couldn't see with the naked eye. It's so small. And I'm very sad for the patients that will have to go through something like a post-COVID syndrome or MHCFS. But I do think that it may be the thing that actually opens up the purse at NIH to study something like this as to what's going on to look at what the treatments could be. You have to put an enormous amount of money into it. It's not because they're so impossible to, to understand and they exceed the great minds of science. No, it's that nobody is actually doing the robust scientific research that yields a robust scientific understanding of the, the disease. I think that adding on this tremendous unprecedented stress of, of COVID isolation and sheltering in place, I will not be surprised if we see a real uptick in a lot of these only problems just because we know that stress is so central to a lot of them and, and cortisol dysregulation and things like that. I thought that we called the new secret society the Yellow Wallpaper Society. <laughs> That's one of my favorite short stories ever. You absolutely hear what you're saying. And one of my other little fervent hopes, since everyone's working from home, everyone's studying from home, I'm really hoping that when people try to start going back to normal, these infrastructures that have been set up don't go away. For those of us who can't be out in the world, that we'll still be able to study and go to school from home. I'm really hoping this doesn't stop for those of us who don't get to come along with everyone outside again. I really hope so too. I hope that telemedicine sticks because that's really helpful for chronically because it's so hard to go to the doctor. I really hope that like the door is propped open forever for telework for people who are, want to, but also need to work from home, that it's very clear that you absolutely can do that, that we can bring people into the workforce who otherwise are not able to work. Like that, that's good for everyone. And I also hope that there's greater empathy from, <laughs> I, I speak from personal experience, a lot of not close friends, but the next ring out of friends of people that I know throughout my illness have said things to me when I'm like, I'm homebound. They're like, oh, you get to work from home. You're so lucky. <laughs> Horrible things that now that they're all experiencing it, when I was like sickly isolated, I didn't see not one friend for a year except my mom. That is very abnormal. That's castaway. But the people around me that would hear, that would get a message from my mom, letting them know that this was happening, I would get messages from people that were, I'm a real hermit these days too. And I just like also don't want to go to parties anymore. And I, so I get it. <laughs> I was like, I, oh, bless their heart. <laughs> yeah, it was so upsetting anyway. So I hope that the experience of what it's like to be trapped inside you do not want to be trapped inside. What it's like to see your job go up in smoke or to just be living in a place of extreme economic anxiety, to have the government not doing nearly enough as it, as it relates to your health problem, to have the testing be in a state of chaos and disarray. Uh -huh. These things are so upsetting and they are upsetting for all people with chronic illnesses constantly. But if I would talk to somebody about that previously and be like, yeah, the government doesn't do anything for chronic syndrome or something like that, they'd be like, well, you can't do everything. And they have so many things that they have to study. But they would never say that now. If they can study erectile dysfunction, they can study. <laughs> Let me start in. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, that gets so much funding. Well, 
the, the thing, the single study that made me the most mad in the whole time I've been sick, it's the one study where they did on male birth control and they stopped it after a couple of months. Oh, my fucking God. <laughs> my 13-year-old had that reaction I just gave you was my 13-year-old times five when she heard that. She was like, are you kidding me? That's not a thing, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm sorry. I'm so angry. I couldn't. I still think about it all the time because it's like the one time they've tried to study this for men, they stopped in me and are like, whoa, whoa, this is They're the comfort. They are not comfortable. They are not comfortable. And I was like, are you joking? Like that is, that is what it is to be a woman with any, like, a, oh my, it just made me, it just. What's that? Ginger Rogers did everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards and healed. <laughs> That, was, that really does reduce it all down into just like one example of pinpoint of medical misogyny. I do see glimmers of this changing. Like I had a female pain doctor last year where she gave me a medication. I responded quite badly to it. And normally if I respond badly to something, my pain medication doctor, who prior to that had always been male, they would be like, oh. You guys, I know I get it. You're so sensitive, like, but just so kind of sending and blah, blah, blah. And fine, if you don't want to take it, I'm not saying you don't want to take it. I'm saying that I responded badly. They were such assholes about it. And then I had this female physician and I responded badly. And I came in and I, I was apologetic. I was like, oh, I went really badly. I'm so sorry if there's something else that we could do. And she was like, first of all, do not apologize to me. <laughs> Second of all, don't you know, all drugs are basically tested pretty much exclusively on middle-aged white men. So if you're not responding to this in a typical way, that just means that we either need to play around with it and see if we can find the right dose for you, or it just doesn't work for you. I mean, it's not your fault. And I was like, God bless you. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen the movie Labyrinth? With David Bowie and, oh gosh, sorry, one of my favorite movies ever, but medical stuff reminds me of Labyrinth, where you don't know who's helping you. Everyone you meet should be helping you, but has their own issues and motives, and you, there's no rules. And the second yeah. you think you had the rules figured out, everything oh, shifts again, and then you're put out in the middle of nowhere, alone and isolated. Just watch it one more time, because it's so I, good. Uh, but uh, uh, if you just look at the like, chronic illness lens, I know it wasn't, but it feels like an allegory all the way through. I've had people say that to me before about labyrinths when I talk about descending into the underworld. They're like, oh, it's like labyrinth, where there is a direct linear path for everything. It's a disorienting. You're constantly lost in front of your rig, and you don't know who the helpers are. Like, not with, like, your merry band of habits. It's Oh my God. I hadn't even thought about that. The hero heroine journey. You're right. Labyrinth's the heroine journey. Yes. Yeah. That's what I mean. And wow. I, so I have to watch it again, but I have had people say that to me and just hearing you talk about it. The labyrinth is classic version of a depiction of descending into the underworld. It's into the place where nothing makes sense anymore and everything is dark. And, and that's very different from <laughs> upper world journey, which is also hard, but just totally go slay the dragon yeah if you think that you're on that journey because everybody is only trying to tell you that you're on that journey you are going to feel like a failure if you are trying to slay the dragon of Elrest and can't so therefore it's wrong for it with you you're a bad hero it's not conscious to you because a lot of archetypes in all these stories are generally not conscious in this culture they're not meant to be sort of up at the front of your consciousness like a lot of other like older cultures these stories are right at the front of your consciousness i think to help 
guide you to know what to do and you know, what story you're in. But in our culture, it's not, but it's really ingrained in you. Every movie, screenwriters sit there with Joseph Campbell's book on their desk to be like, okay, here's how you plot. A, mm-hmm. This is what a story is. This is the monument. That's from <laughs> that is not just the one story that is a really compelling story but the story of the descent into the underworld and this more cyclical feminine dark story about the bowels <laughs> and about the bowels of the earth and the culture and your own bowels it is the story of trauma and of systemic trauma the results of something wrong in the root system it's what i think is so much what this initiation is about it is about going down into the sick root system to see what's wrong there and that that is not usually healed by going through it one time it's a lot of cyclical descents and looking again and again and again at what's wrong and and fixing a little bit more each time to me that is a much healthier and more true to life story of how you fix a lot of really difficult systemic problems they're not fixed by just the one (laughs) march on the capitol (laughs) or like the one legislative victory it just is not how it works so many different collective actions taken over time what you can make out of it it's not to slay all of illness or help all women or fix chronic illness you know maltreatment but just start to work on like what you can that's right in front of you that that to me has been pretty helpful to understand that's how any of these big problems ever get fixed is like really just dealing with what you can deal with right in front of you and and then link arms with as many people as you can that are that are like you and as the collective that's how you make yourself big in this in a system in which you're quite small is linking together with all of these other people that are similar to you and that that is how you can be strong and big and go up against these big systems that are so you know are hurting you have you heard the story behind well-behaved women rarely make history? No, I know that quote. Yeah, the quote is that idea of go be Mae West, go be the rabble rouser. But the woman who wrote the, it was from, I think, her thesis. And she said, that wasn't my point. It's awesome. If you know you want to go out and be the rabble, cheers, salute, bless, be muzzle off, go do it. But so what I was trying to say was that there's a lot of women who, even in their assigned roles, they were still making change. They were doing it in their quiet way. And there's a place for quiet women or women who are introverts or women, and not just women, not just owners of ovaries, but like, I'm just going with what she was talking about from her thesis, but anyone who is quiet, marginalized, introverted, or forced into introversion or quietness, there's still a place for radical acts, even within the bounds you're given. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It is everything. <laughs> it is. It, it really is. It is how you become strong when the reality is you have, so, there is real weakness in your body, in your life, but you can gain so much strength by connecting yourself to all of these other people. It's just very difficult to do. And it's not valorized. Like it's, as you said, like it's these smaller, quieter lives are not lifted up as these you know, important ways to be a person, but especially a woman. It's the only stories of women that we hear about that are powerful. They have to be in this very traditionally male role or... Hunger Games. <laughs> yeah, Hunger Games, exactly. Like an arrow-wielding sword, wielding gun, toting male hero with boobs. But there's so many different ways that you see that. It's another really common 
depiction of that that's a little older is just the tomboys. The, the, all, all, those were all of my favorite female characters mm-hmm. growing up. It was always this girl that was just like, ugh, girl stuff. I hate girl stuff. I did not realize but the whole time until the last few years how damaging that was to really denigrate and diminish the feminine and all of those feminine things. I thought that I was being feminist. So I thought that I was being pro-woman by denigrating all of these feminine things. And talking about sex and gender, one of the things that I really think about a lot is for a lot of women, whether it's social conditioning or whether it's biological, that you do have these inclination towards more feminine like impulses. But they're so culturally denigrated that the things that are more natural to you, you start to push down and you start to make bad and make wrong and thinking that you're getting ahead by adopting all of these more masculine qualities. And the problem is, is that if they are more innate to you, regardless of how they got there, if it's socially conditioned that way, if it's your soul, if it's your biology, if it's just how you are in the world and the world thinks that those are all second-class values, you are screwed. <laughs> the culture starts to become very warped and I'm starting to really lean in the direction of only valuing these masculine values. I think that we see that right now. The current political situation is just the most toxically masculine to a caricature degree. At the very least, that is something that's important to make conscious to oneself, to explore and to think about just even thinking about those values. Masculine values is really useful to become conscious of like, oh, well, <laughs> if you put them in a ledger next to each other, I like all these feminine values, but do I employ them in my life? Do I feel confident about like presenting as a caring, nourishing person versus a striving, confident, high-achieving person that's going on the ladder of accomplishment in this really linear way that people feel so much shame around when they get knocked off of that ladder and start going descending again into the underworld again. And I'm like, oh, I failed. I didn't do the thing that people are expecting of me, which is to beat my illness. That is what we expect of all people. It's so fucked up because a lot of illnesses you can't beat and it's not your fault if it gets worse again and you regress. You should circle around those people with as much care and nourishment as possible to help them from falling too deep but by themselves because that is what's going to happen if they feel so much shame that they don't reach out to people to get the support that they need. I find it really insane that we gender traits the generosity would be feminine or the kindness would be feminine and striving is masculine that's just the most mind screw for me to me it's personally generosity and kindness is incredibly brave mr rogers is brave to me steve Irwin is brave to me the people who just take off the armor and they're like i'm just going to meet the world with kindness and compassion and I'm leaving the armor behind. That is an act of sheer bravery. That's way more brave to me than I'm going to put on all my rage armor and I'm going to go out and slay the world and I'm going to own it. I'm going to kill it. I, I'm sorry, I'm from the Silicon Valley. So I'm going to kill it. I'm going to own it. I'm going to dominate it. My entire professional career was pretty much in the Silicon Valley. I was an artist in the Silicon Valley, but I worked with all the companies and the people in the companies. That culture of I'm killing it and literally killing themselves. 80 hour work weeks and drink at night to unwind with your friends. It felt very toxic. When I got so sick, I had to quit my business and I had to move to a very different space. It was calming to not be around all that. It was nice to embrace something calmer. Mm-hmm.
Yeah. But I do think that it's just such a complicated conversation because that behavior in Silicon Valley is overwhelmingly male. <laughs> and defecting into the world of wellness is overwhelmingly female. <laughs> so again, I think it's very difficult because I'm not enough research has been done in these areas. I think it's very difficult to say, does that have anything to do with the differences between estrogen and testosterone, et cetera? Regardless of why that is, I do think it is important to recognize that we do gender those traits. And you do see a lot of these more masculine behaviors like in men and these more feminine behaviors in women. And that it is not a surprise that we valorize all those masculine traits and we really push down all of those feminine traits, no matter where you come down on whether if gender is just a total social construct. Like, even if you think that we've constructed it so that we associate those qualities with women right now, therefore, those qualities are all secondary and you're walking around as this defective secondary person that has all the bad wrong qualities that's hugely problematic it makes you devalue yourself as right as not brave as not strong as not courageous nourishment and care and empathy and compassion and all these sort of stereotypically founded things it's incredibly difficult to be emotionally fluent. it's much easier to be like an emotional idiot <laughs> we don't think of it that way we're like oh people are interested in exploring their emotions it's like actually a lot of those people are the most like emotionally competent people out there one of my favorite stories was a man who was talking about his daughter who was at the the princess stage and i was a teacher for years. I've raised seven children that weren't my own. I have two of my own. And I can pretty much promise you 90% of the girls I've raised and taught, there's a stage where it's a glitter bomb and it is pink and it is purple. And it is everywhere. And it is all consuming. And I was born in the 70s. So I was raised baby X and you are not going to do this. God damn it. You will march. And so when my own child got there, I felt very similarly, just prepare her for the world, prepare her to be a strong woman. And this guy came out with this blog and he said, his daughter hit that stage and she wanted to be a princess. He's like, and I do not disapprove. And here's what we do. We sit down every day with the newspaper, curated, and I am her royal advisor. And <laughs> she dresses up as her princess self. I wear my, my advisor hat and we go through the newspaper and we talk about what her subjects are dealing with. And then we talk about how we as a royal family <laughs> can help the subjects of the world, what charities we can donate to, what decisions would she make if she was on this committee? She could write to the council members of the city. And I was like, that's a brilliant way to lift up that instead of seeing princess as weak as Disney. <laughs> Thank you, Disney. Instead of seeing it that way, to turn that compassion into a strength. That was one of the most beautiful stories I'd ever read. That really changed my shift to parenting. I love that because it's one of the things that really does bother me. I listen to so many Smarty Pants podcasts that are always people that I super respect. But whenever they get to these issues, they're like, Ugh, this is this article about women being interested in love and nourishment and compassion and care. It's all bullshit. And I'm like, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> like, but, but those are incredible qualities. What if you are seeing that a little bit more in women for whatever reason? Shouldn't we lean into that and lift those women up and be like, whoa, <laughs> these women are so amazing and look at what they're doing and, and look at this different type of leadership. There's just this like inherent need or need to dissociate with things that are feminine that it does just come with not wanting to be perceived as weak yourself. It's a very complex topic, but I still think it is worth 
thinking about and talking about and studying more. I want to know, is there any overlap between somebody that is born to the male sex, but is presenting or feels more feminine? Is there overlap? Because that's interesting. That's like important to dignify and to understand that there's a lot of diversity and a lot of differences. And Or if that's not there and that doesn't exist, it's still important to dignify and to lift up. I'm interested in having more conversations around those that are not using gender against one another, but to really look at those differences, no matter who they show up in and and dignify them and use them to make things better, to make things more balanced and richer. One of the greatest signifiers of young people who have testicles growing up to becoming misogynistic or not is how they see the male figure in their life treating women. And not necessarily whether they'll be soft or gentle, but just whether they will be, yeah, we'll just leave that (laughs) there. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Be kind, be gentle, be a badass. This is unprecedented times, so I don't think those three terms have ever been more important. If we offended you as we were discussing gender, we're doing our best with our language. This is how we're processing everything. If you have your own thoughts on this, we would actually really love to hear them. Comment below, especially if you head over to our invisiblenotbroken.com website. I leave my comments open. As long as you are not being abusive, please leave comments and talk to us. This is an open dialogue, and I'm very interested to hear what you have to say. Thank you, everyone. Again, I just need to say it one more time. Be kind, be gentle, and in whatever way works for you, be a badass.